Uh, I want to begin with a reading here and see what you hear. This is from Abraham Heschel. He says, we can never sneer at the stars. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. Sublime grandeur evokes unhesitating, unflinching awe. Away from the immense, cloistered in our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything. Away from the immense, cloistered in our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything. But standing between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight. This little um, paragraph, I think, uh, comes from a book called Spiritual Audacity and Moral Grandeur. I don't know for sure because I loaned this book out and someone never gave it back, which I think is funny because it's called Spiritual Audacity and Moral Grandeur and they stole my book. Um, But you can look it up just by Googling sometime. You cannot mock the dawn. So Heschel is, um, he's more than just a, a rabbi from the Jewish tradition. He's kind of a rabbi of awe or wonder. He says, the origin of religion is wonder instead of um, what people often think of, which is fear of death. (laughs) Maybe it's both. It's fear of death and wonder or awe. So um, I want to make a few comments on, on this little passage, and I might read a little bit more if I have time, too. But um, it's challenging to have something to say about silence. You know, I chose this as a topic about a year ago, and I kept thinking, what in the world are you supposed to say about silence? It's like, (laughs) just stop talking. Uh, but it's so, we're so out of practice when it comes to uh, a life of silence or even a moment of silence. Even sitting there for 30 seconds for some of us feels excruciating. We don't know what to do. Oh my God, when is this going to end? Um, so I, I feel like a few words are, are in order about, about silence. And I've sort of broke up, I'm speaking twice this month on the topic, and the first talk I wanted to talk mostly about our relationship with the external noise, and today I want to talk a little bit about our relationship with the internal noise, which is just as tyrannical as um, your Facebook feed in a way, worse maybe. So there's a kind of inner and outer dynamic when when it comes to a conversation about about silence, and um, I've been watching this show called Alone. Have you seen this show? Boy, a lot of you just, yes. Um, Alone is, it's on the History Channel. You can uh, maybe see it on Netflix or something if you 
you're into it. It's, it's a show where they take wilderness people, like experts, um, and they send them out in a kind of competition with, no, with nothing except I get the, they get to choose a certain number of items and they take their own camera gear so there's no like crew sort of filming it. They're just out there alone and they see who can last the longest, which is kind of funny. Um, there's a great, the, the newest season, they try to last 100 days in the Arctic. And I don't know, they start off with 10 people. And, and you can tap out by picking up your little satellite phone and saying, I'm done. I'm afraid I'm going to die. <laughs> come get me. And they'll come get you. So it's a very intriguing show, great concept. Um, but it digs around in some of the same terrain that I want to talk about today. And, and, and of course, it raises the issue of what is our relationship with silence? Because if you've ever been to a wild place alone, I've done a few sort of solo uh, fasting kind of experiences. It sounds romantic. Like, wouldn't it be amazing just to go and fast for a few days and be totally alone. <laughs> but whatever you're carrying with you internally, guess what? It comes with you. <laughs> and that's what makes the show so interesting because there's this kind of like glimpse into people's relationship with the external environment and also their relationship with the internal environment, almost at the same time. You get to see it. You get to bear, you know, we get to witness it from the luxury of our couch. And, um, and what is cool about the show is that, you know, they start talking into the camera. So that's a little bit artificial. It's an artificial sort of construct sort of laid over this. They have to bring a camera gear in there, a little bit awkward with it, which is kind of funny. And, but they'll, they end up just sort of saying what's going on for them. And it's so interesting to, to witness people's sort of psychological, or I might even say spiritual, disposition surfacing. Because there's, no, there's nothing else except whatever's going on in the landscape of the soul, of the heart, and of the mind, of the psyche, it's going to come up. So I'm telling you this ahead of time because silence isn't that much fun. Really, to practice some silence, you don't know what's going to surface, which is why people don't practice it. They, want, they don't want to know whatever kind of monologues or dialogues are happening. They don't want that stuff to really surface. They don't want their own fears and, you know, neurotic ideas or you know, whatever, or even memories for that matter. That's another interesting show, uh, thing about the show that's kind of surprising. If you've never been in a wild place alone for a long time, um, it's very interesting how memories come back. And again, not just like happy ones, like remember that time I got a matchbox car for Christmas? No, I mean, we're talking about you don't know, you don't have any control of what surfaces. Partly, it's partly because, I'm doing a little analysis here, it's partly because all of a sudden, we don't have all this external stimulation, so your body starts coming alive, like your five senses and smell and taste and hunger and... That's not a five sense, but you know what I mean. Your, your body, suddenly you're much closer to your body, 
And your body is connected to memories. So one smell that you ordinarily would never, never smell because you've got your air freshener in your car, your, your air-conditioned vehicle, just all of a sudden things surface. So I'm sort of hovering around this because I want to talk about, I want to try to talk about, if we practice some silence, what might actually happen to us, to the psyche? And how do we have a relationship with these many voices and internal landscapes that begin to surface? Um, what's the point of it? Might as well just walk around with these two little white magic things in your ears like you have a constant soundtrack to your own life. Um, fill it up. Why take the headphones out, so to speak? And so I'm, I'm going to try to make a case that, that it matters to a certain extent. So um, I want to give you a very... I've done this once before, and I won't do like a very detailed thing, but I want to talk about at least a way of conceptualizing what we might call the psyche. You can call it the mind if you want, but I like psyche. And what we mean when we say the, a word like I and or mine or that kind of thing. So typically, imagine an iceberg for a moment. Imagine an iceberg. At the very tip of the iceberg, we're going to call that the ego. And here's a fun party fact, in case you go to parties where people like to talk about psychology, all right? Um, both Jung and Freud never used the word ego. And it's in our um, popular parlance, because of Freud and Jung, by the way, but they never used the word. They used the German word for I. So it gives you a clue. What is the ego? I. I feel like having some coffee. Well, thank you for letting, letting us know your ego thoughts, okay? That's all it means. It's, it's that simple. It's what you're aware of. It's the tip of the iceberg, I want to remind you. It's above the surface of the water, just like our head is sort of above the surface of our body, if you want to think about it that way. It's the eye. Now, you're going to say, how did we get to the word ego? The translators of both Freud and Jung said, that's not fancy enough. We can't just say I. So they started using the ego, which is a Latin word, to kind of fancy it up. And then it entered our modern parlance. Anyway, I know that's going to be a really fun party fact. People are going to be like, dang. Um, okay, now, this is where I'm just, we're doing a McDonald's drive through version here. And I'm not even going very deep into the psyche, but I want to talk about just what's right below the waterline, okay? Right below the I, the head that goes around saying, I this, I think this, I voted for so-and-so, I, 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 I did it my way. That's the ego. And the ego, by the way, I'm not even against it. There are a lot of spiritual people like, ego is the problem. None of you would be here if you didn't have an I that said, I think I'd like to go to C3. The, the ego, in a sense, is the gift of human consciousness, awareness, we could even say, if you want to sound less fancy. It's just what we're aware of. What a gift! Because if you didn't have an ego, you couldn't plan. And for that matter, you couldn't remember. You would just be constantly in the moment and annoying people, all right? So ego is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, if your only 
relationship you have is with your small eye, then we might have a problem. So let's talk about just below the surface of the water for a moment. And what tends to happen, sometimes in moments where there's less stimulation, is all of a sudden other voices start crowding in to what you think of as I. Now, I'm describing something very subtle. It's not like you're thinking, I have voices that are attacking me. We have certain uh, <laughs> it's, uh, diagnoses for that kind of thing. But just think more subtly for a moment. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to call these just below the surface line complexes for a moment, or sub-personalities. It depends on the tradition you come from. But a complex is sort of, an, a one way of putting it is like some constellated energies. And they seem to come up. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt sort of like all of a sudden you started acting in a certain way and it felt like afterwards, I don't know what came over me? Anybody ever have a situation like that? Okay? I'm going to give you examples of subpersonalities and complexes. Here's a whole list of them. We're not going to go into any detail about them. I'm just going to list them. So one would be a wounded child. When a child is a complex or a subpersonality just below the surface, and sometimes you're in a situation, like if we go back to our show alone, and you're out there, and there's no mommy to take care of you, your wounded child is likely to be activated, and all kinds of needy things are going to start coming up. That's an example. Now, there's a victim. That's a big subpersonality that can come up and, and attack us. Suddenly, everyone's against me. You know, I don't need to tell you what a victim is, but... That kind of thing. Uh, the loyal soldier. This is the person that says, you should do this, otherwise you're going to get in trouble. Or you're not going to be liked, or you're not going to be loved. These are just examples of little complexes or subpersonalities. They're called subpersonalities because they're sub your ordinary personality. And they come up. They come up. And we don't like them. Now, sometimes they operate fully unconsciously, and they're just, you're just plowing through. Here's another subpersonality, a rebel. I have a strong rebel subpersonality. It's not that I'm actually rebellious or even that creative. It's like, nobody can tell me what to do, and I'm going to do the same five things as these other rebels, you know? Which is what you do, you know? And you're like, oh, the man can't tell us what to do. Let's go do the same things together because the man's not going to tell us what to do. You know, it's a sub-personality. It, it operates. And in certain scenarios, I'll give you an example of one that I'm not going to explain what it is, because it's kind of, it's a little too embarrassing. Since you brought up Brene Brown, we don't want to get too vulnerable up here. But when I'm in a grocery store, something takes over, and I bump into things. I stand in the middle of the aisle. I block people. Um, I'll walk in front of people and take something as if I'm the only one in the grocery store. And I'll, I'll be, you know, the, the arrows now that tell you which way to go, I, I won't pay any attention to those. That is actually a subpersonality. It's a complex of some way, of some sort, that gets activated in that particular scenario. So no, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because silence <laughs> sometimes these things start percolating. And you start to wonder, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I behaving like this? In other words, here's another uh, uh, image for you. 
Beneath the surface of the water here in my iceberg is a whole village of people down there, of voices who want things and have ideas and want to engage in certain kinds of behaviors or certain thinking or frame the world a certain way or want certain things, their energies. And part of growing up is coming into a relationship with these complexes and subpersonalities. It's part of growing up. If you don't want to grow up, don't have a relationship with them. <laughs> and they will activate and operate and make a mess of things. But you won't have any awareness of it, so it's your choice. All right? But I'm just saying in a simple way, part of growing up is beginning a relationship with these voices. And that's, watch the show alone, and you'll see the voices that come up with certain repetitive thoughts and patterns. If you've ever practiced any form of meditation, I don't care what tradition, you've bumped into something like this. The Buddhists call it the monkey mind, which is what are the repetitive thoughts and patterns that are just happening to you? It's not like you woke up in the morning and said, I am going to ruminate on this one conversation that I had last week with someone where I embarrassed myself, I'm just going to do that all day. That sounds like a good, good way to spend my time. It's just happening. Am I making sense what I'm saying? Okay. Which is why we void silence. Because <laughs> it's one thing to have so much outer noise like CNN and NPR and your phone and whatever just, just slamming you with information. You cut that off, like I suggested last time I spoke, take a tech Sabbath, turn your phone off, all the little members of the village say, <laughs> all right, let's have a say. Okay. Now, I'm not going to say much more about my sort of concept, conceptual images of the psyche for a moment. I just want to remind you, you have a whole village in there. All right, that's all I'm doing right now. You have a whole village in there. And I want to ask a kind of very general question. Well, how do you silence the village? Now, they're not going to go anywhere. You don't get rid of any of the subpersonalities or complexes. That it, you don't say, I had a wounded child, but when I was 45, I just sort of got rid of it. Great. You know, it doesn't work that way. You're going to have to live with them. Depends on how much, you know, the, I guess it's a question of how much consciousness are you going to bring to these conversations is one question. But I'm asking for a moment, how do we silence even the village to remind us of the totality of being, not just the messages and voices and repetitive patterns that are in our head crowding everything out, okay? And here we'll go back to Heschel. I want you to close your eyes if you're not already asleep and hear this quotation again, and let the images from here come into your mind for a moment. You ready? Close your eyes. We can never sneer at the stars. We can never sneer at the stars. We can never sneer at the stars. Or mock the dawn. You can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn.
Now, you can open your eyes. These two elemental realities or images, a starlit sky or the dawn, are accessible to every single person on the planet. There's nothing special here. You don't have to go to Yellowstone, nice place. You don't have to go anywhere. Maybe with the stars, we have the issue of light pollution, all right. But beyond that, you can find the stars. Guess what? The sun comes up every morning. Or the sunset, for that matter. And two million years of human evolution has largely been oriented around these fundamental realities. Who am I in the world? I'm a person who looks at the stars and gets up at dawn and experiences the miracle of just being. That's why it's so interesting to go into wild places. It's not like it's for the people who shop at REI, you know, and like wear hiking boots. It's where we all came from in a dynamic, interrelated relationship with the earth community of which we are a part. What Heschel is saying here is that human cultures get stuck especially when it comes to mockery and sneering. Now, I'm sure none of you have done any mocking or sneering, definitely not in politics, okay? It's, it can be like, to use a, who's that, who's that bald dude that was on PBS all the time? Wayne Dyer, okay? He would call it a mind virus, which I love that as, a, as an image. The mind virus takes over. Who can I mock? Who can I sneer? Who can I put down? Where do I stand in some moral or ethical hierarchy? Who's right? Who's wrong? It's just contagious. And, and our phones and devices keep us, keep us plugged into this contagion. Heschel is saying, if you want an antidote, go look at the stars. He really is saying it in that straightforward. And what might happen to you? Listen to the second half of the quote. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. Sublime grandeur evokes unhesitating and unflinching awe. What's possible in, when it comes to human experience is from time to time we're pinned to the ground with grandeur, wonder, Awe. It could be at the stars. It could be at the dawn. It could be the watch, listening to your grandchild playing some imaginary game. You don't know. It's not predictable. But it's part of the human experience, and it levels us. And it quiets the ego and all of the sub-personalities. It just quiets it for a moment. That somehow the totality of your own being is something more than all the voices that are going in your head, than all the noise that wants your attention? Am I making sense what I'm saying? He, and here, notice this. When we're away from the immense, like the stars, like the dawn, like holding the hand of a grandchild, like, I don't know. When we're away from the immense, cloistered in our own concepts, that's the ego, my ideas, my ideas. We may scorn and revile everything. That's how contagious the mind virus is. Now, I'm not above this. 
When I get hooked by this kind of mockery and sneering, it's like my cynicism, maybe that's the best word for it, for the world is just like, like, like I'm a, a rabid dog, you know, just can't trust anything or anyone. Everything's going to hell. We're all going to burn. We're all going to die. This place sucks. I hate politics. I hate the economy. I hate my phone. I hate all of you. <laughs> I hate myself. And he says, but standing between earth and sky, which you can do anytime, stand between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight. By the sight of the totality of being. Now, you cannot manufacture what I'm describing. It's not like there's a special pill that's the awe pill. Like, or if you do these five steps, you'll experience it just happens to you. And when it does, it's a great gift. And then the inner landscape is silenced for a moment. Just leveled, just silenced. And you're experiencing really the mystery and the gift that is life. Here's one more part of the quote and I'm done. If you forfeit your sense of awe, like you give it up, you forfeit your sense of awe, um, letting your concepts diminish your ability to revere something. So you're forfeiting awe, you can't revere anything, you can't stand on the edge of Lake Michigan anymore without saying, I hate all these people on the beach. You know, I just wish the Coast Guard Festival would close forever. <laughs> You've never thought that, of course. If you forfeit your sense of awe, then the universe becomes a marketplace for you. And that's a very sad place to be. Everything turns into market. It's the only value. It's the only value left. The market, the market, the market. What are things worth in the market world? The antidote, and by the way, you see this, I mean, even with concepts like the Department of Natural Resources. That's a market idea. It's not the Department of the Natural World. <laughs> it's the Department of Natural Resources, which we can resource and use now, I'm not against the Department of Natural Resources. I'm just saying, our culture pulls everything into the market. I said this a few weeks ago. This is a great quote from James Hillman. There's only one God. Monotheism is real, and it's called the economy. Okay? So everything gets pulled. And Heschel is saying, don't let that be your concept of the universe. Don't let yourself lose the capacity for awe and wonder, to be surprised, to revere, to walk with a kind of posture in the world that you might stumble into something um, grand and magnificent. Don't lose it, because everything will get pulled into market value. That's what the, our culture is just yanking us toward. Don't do it. Don't go into the natural world thinking, how can I post this? Now, I posted, you know, here I am in Yellowstone. Okay, so I'm guilty of this, but I just mean, if everything gets pulled into what can I do with this, you're just entering the marketplace. And you lose the natural, I'm saying very natural ability to be pinned to the ground by something beautiful and wondrous that will silence you. And it won't be worth talking about because there's nothing to say about it. 
So I'll leave you with these words and we'll hear some more songs from Drew. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn. Ha, 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 stupid son, you just came up. It doesn't work. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. Thanks.